Stuart Swetland was born in Pittsburgh. He's a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, so we have to put some slack on that. <laughs> but at a, at a young age, I see we have at least one Pirates fan. Oh, yeah, Pittsburgher. Uh, he moved to a place by the name of Tonkanic, Pennsylvania. That's in northeastern Pennsylvania. And his father owned an insurance agency there. Now, the reason that's important to me, because I grew up in a town, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, only 20 miles away, Clark Summit and Tonkanic were arch rivals in football. And every Thanksgiving morning, we played these wonderful football games. One year at Tonkanic, one year at uh, Clark Summit. And uh, all the people from Clark Summit, who was heavily Catholic, all of us students, would go to Our Lady of Snows and pray at that early morning mass that we would wipe out the terrible Tonkanic <laughs> Tigers. And uh, we're not quite sure what the, the Protestant kids up at uh, Tonkanic did. I'm not clear on that. You know, Monsignor Swetland actually was raised a loser. So he's a wonderful convert. And then he, uh, after he graduated from Tonkanic High School, uh, he went to the Naval Academy in nearby Annapolis and uh, graduated from there in 1981. Some of his teachers were actually POWs from Vietnam. They had a great impact on him. And he'll allude to the impact that POWs had on our beloved Pope Benedict XVI in his wonderful talk that you're about to hear. By the way, be sure you get a CD of his talk if you haven't gotten one already. But that's the talk that he gave last night. It will be basically the same talk he gives this evening. Then after he graduated the top of his class and was selected as a Rhodes Scholar, oh my he went over to Oxford and he studied. And he came in contact with some wonderful Catholics like Robbie George, who now is a professor at Princeton, and some other wonderful Catholics. And that led him into the Catholic Church. But he decided, you know, he had a little problem, he still had to serve the stint in the Navy, but he decided at this point that the good Lord was calling him to the priesthood. So ultimately after he came back and did his stint in the Navy, he went to the great Mount St. Mary Seminary up in Emmitsburg, doing just fabulous work. And in April of 1990, just 18 years ago this month, we had a great heroine of the pro-life movement. Her name was Joni Andrews. I'm sure some of you have heard of Joni Andrews. So we were taking her around as we do in Defend Life. We try to get our wonderful speakers into as many different uh, situations as possible. Colleges, seminaries, churches, Knights of Columbus Council. That's our core activity. It has been for these last 21 years. By the way, Tom McFadden over here had a great uh, impact on my life. He actually recruited me into the pro-life movement. Back in what year was it? About 1974, right, Tom? Wow. So uh, that's how important recruiting people into the pro life movement is. But anyway, get, get, getting back, Monsignor Swetland uh, went to Mount St. Mary's. That's when I met him 18 years ago this month. And uh, when I found out he was from Tonkanic, Pennsylvania, I immediately bonded with him because we <laughs> up in the same neighborhood. I, about 18 years earlier, I was in the pre-Madeline Murray era. He was in the post-Madeline Murray era, but two great high schools. And then after he was ordained in 1991, and I was privileged to go out to his ordination, the beautiful cathedral in Peoria, where the great Fulton Sheen served as an altar boy and was ordained himself. He became the bishop's secretary, Bishop Myers. He had several uh, parish assignments. He taught at Bradley University. He got his doctorate at Catholic University. And then he was the chaplain at the University of Illinois, one of the largest state universities in America at the Newman Center there. It was already a great Newman Center, but he made it even greater. One of his claims to fame is that he recruited 
more than 60 young men to the seminary, many young ladies to the religious life. Many of the students there at the Newman Center are married and having large families. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Martin Luther's greatest contribution. <laughs> With every, with every introduction, Jack further violates the Eighth Commandment. <laughs> the stuff you put on about Fulton Sheen, my priest friends are kidding me. I'm merciful about that. The only thing Fulton Sheen and I have in common, we are from the same diocese. And, uh, you know, it's good that uh, it's good. No, it's always good to be with with you. I'm going to start uh, with some sacred scripture. I know it sounds Protestant, but I'm going to do it anyhow. And then a little prayer, and then we'll have a talk. The third epistle of John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom indeed I love. Beloved, I hope you are in good health. May you thrive in all their ways as you do in the spirit. For it has given me great joy to have the brothers bear witness to how truly you walk the path of truth. Nothing delights me more than to hear that my children are walking in this path. Beloved, you demonstrate fidelity by all that you do. For the brothers, even though they are strangers, indeed they have testified to your love before the church. And you will do a good thing if, in a way that pleases God, you help them to continue their journey. It was for the sake of the name that they set out, and they are accepting nothing from the pagans. Therefore, we owe it to such men to support them, and thus to have a share in the work of truth. I did write to the church, but Geotrephes, who enjoys being their leader, ignored us. Therefore, if I come, I will speak publicly of what he is doing in spreading evil nonsense about us. And that is not all. Not only does he refuse to welcome the brothers himself, but he even hinders those who wish to do so and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Whoever does what is good belongs to God. Whoever does what is evil has never seen God. Demetrius is one who gets a good testimonial from all, even from truth itself. We give our testimony as well, and you know that our testimony is true. There is much more that I had in mind to write to you, but I do not wish to write it out with pen and ink. Rather, I hope to see you soon that we can talk face to face. Peace be with you. The beloved here send you their greetings. Greet the beloved there each by name. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God our Father, shepherd and guide, look with love on Benedict, your servant, the pastor of your universal church. May his word and example inspire and guide the church. May he and all those entrusted to his care come to the joy of everlasting life. Grant us through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Isidore. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Is this his feast day? It is. Isidore, the bishop. The farmer. No, the, not the farmer. The bishop. Oh. The bishop. May 15th is Isidore, the farmer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I know that May 15th is my birthday. That's the only reason. Oh. Thank, I, I sometimes thank God that I was born at uh, Lutheran because I'd be called Isidore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easy is the way I'm going to go through life. 
Now I read, I didn't do this last night, so it's not on the tape, but I, I read 3 John. Does anyone have any idea why I would choose to read 3 John at the beginning of this talk? By the way, I read the whole book. So if you get nothing out of this talk, you can go home and say, I read a whole book of the Bible tonight. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very short little letter. And does anyone have any guess why I would choose an obscure 3 John to choose? Uh, it's one little phrase. It's in the 8th verse of 3 John. Well, in the way of the truth, the co-workers in the truth, it's Benedict's Episcopal model. Collaborators in the truth, co-workers in the truth. He took his Episcopal model from that letter, and he sees himself as a co-worker or a collaborator in the truth. In 1977, when he was made Archbishop of his home diocese of Munich, he chose that as his Episcopal model. So it comes from 3 John 8. You don't even have to put a chapter, because there's only one chapter. It's 3 John 8. Uh, it looks odd, and uh, Google, uh, not Google, but uh, uh, Microsoft Word will star it when it goes through. Um, so, why am I here tonight talking to you about the theology and pastoral vision of Pope Benedict XVI? Well, obviously because he's coming, but why me? What qualifications do I have? Very few. Uh, I look around this this uh, example of all these wonderful speakers you've had here, and so you want to make them look even better, you get me in, so that oh, no. <laughs> My only claim to fame in this is I happen to have worked for the man for a little bit of my life. And so I can tell sort of inside stories, and I will do that. So you're going to get inside stories here. And I want to tell you the first time we had a conversation. Now, actually, we met. He would remember this. Heck, he probably doesn't remember me at all. But uh, the first time we met, I was a seminarian, and he was scurrying across the Vatican um, to his office, which was, if you look at St. Peter's to the left, around um, uh, from, uh, from the main part of St. Peter's, and uh, he was scurrying across to go to his office early one morning, and myself and a couple of seminarians were there. And we saw it was him, and we want to get, you know, shake his hand and get our picture taken. So we did that. That's not, I don't consider that my first conversation with him because we just got a picture taken. The first time I had a chance to have a conversation with then Cardinal Ratzinger was I had been hired to work on the catechism. Uh, the Universal Catechism was being drafted. I was a convert to the faith. One day in Peoria, it was Christmas vacation, I was staying with Bishop Myers, who was then the co-adjutor bishop of Peoria. He had been vocation director, um, and I was a new seminarian. I didn't have a place to live in the diocese, so I would live in the cathedral uh, rectory when I was there. He saw me Christmas vacation. I didn't have much to do, obviously, it was vacation. He had just gotten the Universal Catechism draft, in the mail, and he says, someone's got to review this for me. He threw it at me and says, you're a new convert, see what you think of this. And I was, of course, very excited to get this document, and I read through it. And quite frankly, in its first draft, there were some significant weaknesses in the draft of the catechism. I think we have a marvelous document in the catechism. It's not perfect, but it's a marvelous document, a sure norm of the faith, and uh, it has a lot to offer to us. But the first draft had some significant weaknesses, as you would expect a draft to have. So that night at dinner, after spending all day with it, I said to um, then Bishop Myers, I said, you know, there are some real weaknesses in this. I would like to, with your permission, get a few of my friends. I was already then an um, a, um, adjunct member of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars, where Ken Whitehead has been an active member, board member for many years. Um, and I said, I've got friends in the fellowship. Can we can I make copies? Because it was a controlled document. It was 
cradle, and uh, allow some theologians to reflect on this together, and I'll give you our input. And the bishop said, that's exactly what I wanted. So I asked Bill May and Jermaine Grisey, John Harden up in Detroit. They, I flipped to Detroit. We spent a week together going over it. Um, what a great way to do theology, by the way. I was learning theology at the, great, at the feet of the great minds uh, uh, in America of theology at the time. And we came up at the end of several months with about 1,500 suggestions for changes in the catechism draft. It was a lot. Well, we presented them to the bishop, and he agreed with about 1,250 of them. And so we sent them into the Vatican. And of course, the editor of the Vatican noticed when one bishop sent him 1,250. <laughs> As I later found out, it was it was 4% of all the changes suggested in the world. Uh, but uh, uh, one time, one time, Cardinal Ratzinger presented the uh, the draft and its, and its suggested changes to uh, another theologian named Kaspar, who's now a cardinal, Walter Kaspar, and he said, I was working at the time with him, he said, here's the comments from Bishop Myers of Peoria of the United States and the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but uh, I, because of that, I met the editor, who was then uh, Father Christoph von Schomburg, when he came to Catholic University. Uh, I had a chance to meet him and talk with him, with, along with Father Harden. And of course, Father Harden, if you ever knew, he was quite insistent when he had a point to be made, and he went went you know, on and on as he has a tendency to do, which is good. And at the end he said, and he looked at me and said, you, you too, right? If there's anything we can do to help, let us know. Well, you know, usually you say that at the end of a conversation and no one ever takes you up on it, thanks be to God, because how many times do you like to say it? Well, this time they took me up on it. I was just ordained a deacon in 1990, went to Peoria, my assignment, I'm on a Saturday, a Saturday morning, I'm doing a funeral at a cemetery at the mausoleum, I come off the altar having just said the prayers, commending the, dead to, uh, commending the person to God, and the funeral director goes, this is very odd, but I have a call from you from Rome. <laughs> I pick up the phone and it was, come to Rome and work for this congregation with Dr. Faith. So they needed an English speaker to deal with all the comments coming in from, from, from America. So I got to do uh, a whole summer, a summer assignment, nice summer job, how a summer job can change your life, uh, working for the congregation with Dr. Faith on the comments that were coming in about the catechism. And so we go to Rome, and Rome's too warm in the summer, so we end up in the mountains in Frascati um, at a Salesian retreat house. And the Cardinal's there with his staff. And what he would do, there's about 40 of us working, he would rotate tables each meal. So about every fourth meal or fifth meal, I, we would share together. So it was the first time I got to sit with Cardinal Ratzinger. And we were working in French and Spanish and English, and this particular table was speaking, as I sat down in French, speaking about moral theology, but I knew a little French and moral theology is easy to follow in another language because the words are basically the same. And um, they're going on and I'm trying to listen when just because he is such a gracious man, Joseph Gardner Ratzinger turns and in perfect English looks at me and says, immortal words I will never forget, who is Rip Van Winkle? <laughs> Me. There had been an article written and published in America that accused the drafters of the catechisms of being theological Rip Van Winkles. Oh. But the 
Cardinal Archbishop did not know how he was being insulted. So he wanted to know the story. So my first, and I think my main contribution to the Catechism Project was explaining American folklore to the Cardinal Archbishop. After I got done explaining who Rip Van Winkle was, he says, oh, there's a story like that in every culture. And the rest of the dinner was a conversation about folklore and the different cultures we came from. There was a Lebanese priest there, uh, Cardinal Chambord, but there was Father from Vienna. So that, that's the kind of man he is. That's my claim to fame, and that's why I'm talking to you, as if I actually know something about the theology and pastoral vision of the Pope. Um, actually, I think I do have the, uh, I've had the privilege of being in dialogue with uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who becomes Bishop, Archbishop Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, now Benedict XVI, because I've been privileged by uh, many fine teachers introducing me to his work. And since even before I was Catholic, uh, I had been reading what he wrote uh, and how he approached theology. And I think he has a lot to say. And I think there's a reason God rose and raised him up to be our Holy Father. And we look forward to hearing him in a few days. So let's talk a little bit about the man. Now, how do you do this? We're doing public theology night, folks. I'm just going to walk through and try to introduce you to the thinking of a person so you can better understand what he has to say to you and to me. Okay? And I'm going to do that by talking about him as a person, how he sees his mission in life, and how his theology reflects that, and then talk a little bit about his papacy and what I think he's going to say to us in America. Okay? So hopefully you have the sheets. If you don't, please, whoever's in the back there, everybody should have. There's three sheets. An outline, a biography, which is the official Vatican biography. It's very helpful. And a couple of pages tabled together that have quotations from his works, okay? Because I'm going to make reference to those quotations. Joseph Ratzinger, the person. All right? I see people are getting things, so I'll give just a moment. Not much room to work up here. I usually pace more now, so. All right, I'm going to go ahead and begin. So here's what we got. Three things to talk about when talking about the person Joseph Ratzinger. He is first and foremost a Catholic. He is very German. Actually, Bavaria. Yeah. And he is an introvert. This is an important act, uh, aspect of how he's running, his, running the church, to be honest with you. But it's also an important uh, attribute of the man. First Catholic. He was born 16 April 1927. Now, to situate that in American mindset, it, the Yankees murderer row. It's, okay. it's a year Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. The Yankees had murderer's row, and they beat my beloved Pittsburgh Pirates 4-0 in, in the World Series that year. So just to situate it, now you know the history, what year we're talking about. 1927, 16 April. What was important about 16 April? It happened to be Holy Saturday. He was born right as we got ready to celebrate Easter. And he was baptized the day he was born with the Easter one. And here's what he says himself about that. It's what's most important in his life. And you'll see the quotation of this. It's quotation number one. 
To be the first person baptized with the new water was seen as a significant act of providence. I have always been filled with thanksgiving for having had my life immersed in this way in the Easter mystery. The more I reflect on it, the more this seems fitting to the nature of our human life. We are still waiting for Easter. We are not yet standing in the full light, but walking towards it, to, toward, towards it full of trust. So you see from the very beginning, what is most central in his way of thinking is that he's a baptized Christian, immersed into the mystery of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It defines everything else about the man. And it is, in his mind, an act of providence that he had the privilege of being baptized there on the very same day he was born as the first new baptism in a new Easter season. Of course, he is of German background, Bavarian. His dad was a policeman, very anti-Nazi, and because of that had lost a job at a bigger police station, was sent to an even smaller town, so that he grew up in a very small town near the Austrian border that he himself described as Mozart. Mozartian. Yeah. Right? That's a word. Okay? Yeah, he, loves, he loves Mozart, so uh, that's a very high compliment. But he grew up full of that Bavarian Catholic culture. And this becomes extremely important for him as the Nazi menace grows around him. Remember, 1927, the Nazis took over in 33, so he's six. And then when he's 12... World War II breaks out, 39. Okay? And by the end of the war, as a 16-year-old, he's drafted the seminary. They don't allow the seminary exemption anymore, and they draft his seminary class into an anti-aircraft battery. If you read his memoirs, it's kind of like a, 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 you know, a Beetle Bailey, if you want to talk about someone who was not made for the military. Uh, but his whole, the whole thing was kind of goofy. But he, he couldn't even do that. He goes able. Oh. Um, he went AWOL and was arrested actually by the Americans because he goes home. And the Americans arrest him and put him in a prisoner war camp for a few uh, weeks and then realize he's not a Nazi and he's not a collaborator and he's um, released. And then he and his brother both go to seminary right after the war. They had been in seminary before the war and they go in again afterwards. All right? Now, you'll hear people, and I'm sure this will be brought up again in the press, that he was in the Nazi youth. Technically, that's correct. To go to school in 30s Germany, you had to, if you were a boy, be in the Nazi youth. He had a friendly, friendly high school, we would call a junior high school professor, teacher, who signed him up, even though he didn't go to any of the meetings or do anything. It was just a way of keeping him in school. Right? So technically he's on the rolls, but he wasn't a part of it. And that happened in a lot, especially in the very Catholic parts of Germany where people did that for him. Right? Um, the um, quotation number two here is, speaks at that time. This is from the New York Times, right after he's elected pope. The caution drew on his childhood, on his childhood in the fervently Catholic villages of Bavaria, where he saw Nazism firsthand. He attended a state-run school in Trostein, which had Nazi teachers, but boarded at his church-run institution, St. Michael's, where students lived in a seminary-like setting under the tutelage of priests. 
For a shy, bookish boy whose father was resolutely anti-Nazi, according to his elder brother George, the church was a haven from Nazi propaganda. Both boys became priests, the church gave them education, and here the New York Times can't help but give a Marxist interpretation, and perhaps, not incidentally, improve their social status. Like we go into the priesthood for the salary, you know? I tell people when I'm recruiting men to the priesthood, I said, the pay is low, but the fringe benefits are out of this world. Um, but the Times is right that the church was for the young uh, German Catholics, the church was seen as a bulwark against totalitarianism. As a pillar of truth, it was the haven away from the madness of totalitarian propaganda. And you see this not only in, the, in being anti-Nazi, but you see it after the war and, before, and earlier in its being anti-communist, another totalitarian menace. And you can imagine as he speaks about the tyranny of relativism, which he speaks about, of course, right before he gets elected pope, you can understand how he sees the denial of truth as the first step towards tyranny. Dictatorship of relativism, remember the term he used? Mm -hmm. He sees that what happens is you kill off truth or truth claims, then what's left is power and the will to power. <clears throat> and so for him, throughout his life, the church and the truth that has been revealed to us in Christ is the only sure defense against the scourge of totalitarian dictatorship and all the human rights violations that flow from that kind of ideology. And so throughout his life, this is going to be a reoccurring theme. But his experience of the church and growing up that way as, um, see, makes him love the church all the more. Let me just read, since, especially since Jack made an, uh, reference to it in his, um, in his introduction, a quotation I don't actually have on your sheet. It's about his experience in seminary right after the war. Um, he does, I put a, a little part of this quotation there as um, number four. Our studies, as I have said, were propelled by our common hunger for knowledge. But they also had the proper human environment, the close community atmosphere that reigned in the seminary, despite many differences in age and intellectual background. It's funny to read his memoirs on this. You know, he loves books, and a lot of books were destroyed more, too. Nazis burned a lot of them. Our bombs burned a lot of them. And so, you know, they're scrounging around for books, but they were able to put together a very good library in the seminary. And he speaks about that. He talks more about the seminary. He says, largely responsible for this, this good way of life, was the rector at the time, Michael Hulk, and had been in, he, who had been in the concentration camp at Dachau for five years. <laughs> who had um, uh, five years and who soon acquired the nickname The Father for his kindly and affectionate ways. We also played a lot of music in the house and on festive occasions we had theatrical performances. But my most precious memories remain the great liturgical celebrations in the cathedral and the hours of silent prayer in the house chapel. The grand and venerable figure of Cardinal Flahaber impressed me deeply. You could practically touch the burden of suffering he had to bear witness during the Nazi period, which now enveloped him with an aura of dignity. In him, we were not just looking for, quote, an accessible bishop. Rather, what moved me deeply about him 
was the awe-inspiring grandeur of his mission with which he had become fully identified. This is his reflections as a cardinal on his years in the seminary. The men who taught him, the men who ordained him, the men who formed him as a young intellectual were men who had suffered at the hands of Nazism. To think to have a rector who had been in Dachau for five years, in the hellishness. I, uh, Jack mentioned that some of my teachers at uh, the Naval Academy or POWs, my, my superintendent, for example, uh, was uh, Admiral Lawrence, uh, who uh, had been in a POW camp in Vietnam for, for five and a half years. His daughter, Wendy, was a classmate of mine. She became an astronaut. Um, uh, my uh, battalion commander, Paul Galante, here from the state of Virginia, uh, part of, you know, he was made famous by the Swiss boat ads. He was one of the big, big, uh, I think he was the leading one pushing against Kerry's lies on that stuff. But Paul Galani, and I, I remember showing him, I was, I was doing work in the newspaper, uh, on the TV at the time, and I remember showing the clips, because I had them in the files, of him being shot down. He had never seen them. And so as we interviewed him and showed him the clips, he started to cry. He'd never seen himself being shot down. Uh, and that was so impressed to me, because he was such a great leader. And I know how they impressed me, because they had suffered for this country and for the truths that they believed be worth laying your life on the line for. Things that we had vowed to support and defend the Constitution uh, against enemies, both foreign and domestic. But, I mean, that's people who are willing to die for the country, and I love my country, but much more profound are those who are willing to die for the gospel. And uh, these priests were men who were willing and had many colleagues who did die for the sake of the, of the gospel. So this is the kind of training he had. Yes, he's Catholic first, but he has a very rich experience that comes from his German background. And last but not least, I hope you sense that this life was a life of a man who is bookish and shy. That's what New York Times puts it. It's not, uh, it's not inaccurate. Uh, he is very shy. J.B. Chu, John Paul II, Carol Wittia, was an extrovert, sort of like I am. He loved people. He loved the crowds. He energized on the crowd. When he was, even the end of his life, when he was sickly, he, you know, you see him, he would be hobbling up, and then you see the crowd, boom! It was like energy galore. I was it was the Holy Spirit, but it was more his, also his act, and he, boy, could he command the stage. Right? And he made himself the Pope, the evangelizing Pope. And thanks God we had him for 20, what, 26 years. Yeah. This Pope is not going to do as much. He even says so explicitly about his pontificate. He is an introvert. Proof of this was my experience working with him on the catechism. We have these things in Italy, which I do not understand. They're called coffee breaks. <laughs> it gets in the way of work. Any of the people in Italy get anything done. We're always stopping for this and that and everything, the World Cup, soccer, whatever. Strikes, you know, someone goes on strike, you know. But they have this, this holy moment in the day, twice a day, when you have to stop everything and have coffee, right? And everyone gathers around the coffee bar, and they smoke, and they just do their little things with their coffee, and you know, get wonderful thing. He would sneak away. I see this because I was in the background doing staff work. He would sneak away when everybody was visiting around the coffee bar. And he would go over to somewhere where he couldn't be seen, and he'd reach into his pocket, and he'd pull out his Greek New Testament, which he kept in his suitcase pocket, and he'd open it up, and he'd start to pace and pray. This is one of the places I learned to pace oh. and pray. Uh, it's from him. He would just go back and forth, and he would do it, and no one would notice he had slipped away. You know, I got to see it because I was behind the scenes. 
uh, because he'd rather be in that silence that he speaks about, the hours of silence in the chapel. He's a man of deep prayer, a man who does not get energized by being around people. I have friends who work at his staff and say they have to limit how many contacts he has per day with people. That's why he's not doing mass, you know, and having people in all the time, you know, take me to a Boy Scout group which open Rome and he'd cancel his schedule and have them in and do a mass, you know. Uh, they're being very judicious with those things. That's one of the reasons he's getting huge crowds at the Wednesday catechesis, because it's the only time you can get to see him, um, which is a good thing. And then they're having, he's out drawing JP2 at the Wednesday catechesis. Right. All right, his mission. The man that I'm describing, and I'm trying to describe some personal traits of him, Catholic, German, an introvert, a man of prayer, he sees his mission as, first and foremost, to be a priest. And if you look at quotation number three, he speaks of his time as an assistant pastor in his first assignment as a um, diocesan priest. Since the pastor did not spare himself, neither did I want to, nor could I spare myself. Because of my scant practical training, I had at first some difficulty with these duties. But soon the work with the children in the school and the resulting association with their parents became a great joy to me. And the encounter with different groups of Catholic youth also quickly generated a good feeling of community. To be sure, it, was, it had also become evident. Now this is a key, key passage to know this man's life. To be sure, it also became evident how far removed the world of life and thinking of many children was from the realities of faith and how little our religious instruction coincided with their actual lives and thinking of our families. Nor could I overlook the fact that the form of youth work, which was simply a continuation of methods developed between the two world wars, would not be able to deal with the changing circumstances of the world we now live in. We simply had to look for new forms. More on that in a moment. Some of the insights that came to me as I experienced these change conditions, I gathered up some years later in my essay, The New Pagans and the Church, which at the time triggered a lively discussion. <laughs> this is the late 40s, early 50s. Right? He's ordained a priest uh, in 51 on the Feast of Peter and Paul year 51. And his first experience of pastoral ministry in the early 50s is the old forms aren't working. This is not communicating the faith. Not that the faith has changed, but that we must find a new way of expressing the ancient truths to speak to the problems and the people and the mindset of our day and age in the middle of the 20th century. So whenever you hear someone say that this pope was against the Second Vatican Council and a Giordamento, he was one of the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. He was there at all four sessions. He helped draft the documents. Now there are aspects of the council and aspects of the implementation of the council that he's been quite critical of, as any theologian worth his salt would be. But he was looking as... Anyone with pastoral sensitivity at the time, including Carol Wattia, who becomes John Paul II, were looking for a way of expressing the ancient truths of the faith that would be more readily accessible to the men and women of their age. And that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. We have to find effective ways of communicating the ancient truths of the, doc, of the, of the, of the gospel 
to every day and every age and every place. And that looking for new forms is not a denial of the ancient truths, but finding an effective catechetical and evangelical spirit in which to express them. Right? More on this in a minute. So he's a priest through and through. He also was early on seen by his colleagues and by his teachers to have a gift to be a theologian. He had the kind of mind, the kind of work habits, the linguistic ability to be an outstanding theologian. So his, one of his mentors says, there's this competition. And if you win the competition, now sometimes we never even give any prize, but if you submit and you win, it's your doctoral thesis. This is a great, I wish I could <laughs> You write a thesis, and if it's accepted, you already got your doctoral thesis done, then you just have to do the coursework and you got your doctorate. Not just, it's accepted, it's accepted, so you can go out. So he, they do it by a blind, you know, it was a blind number, and you know, people submitted their thesis, and it was on the question of how Augustine viewed the church. And so he submits his paper. He worked on it over summer vacation. He said it, he never worked harder in his life. He did all summer vacation. For there, those summer vacations were quite long. And it was into October, and then he started his priestly assignment. And sure enough, he won the competition. And so all he had to do was finish his court work and get his first doctorate, which, of course, in Germany, then there's a second work you do to qualify yourself as a professor, which is a published work, which he did to become a professor. So right early on in his priesthood, he's pulled out of regular priestly work to begin to be a professor. And he would have happily spent his life as a professor. But something interrupted, and it was the Second Vatican Council. And his cardinal takes him along as his theologian for every session of the council. But let's talk a little bit about the man, the theologian. Look at, um, you saw, already saw um, quotation number four, right? And of course, for him, theology is not something you just do. Theology you do to communicate to others the saving truths of the gospel, right? So it's theologian, but always with a mind towards being a teacher. Right? Someone who teaches these truths to others and brings people into a more profound understanding of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen. So let's look at his theology. Quotation number five. He's searching around for a way of communicating the truths of the gospel to our day and our age. This being the mid-50s, the mid-20th century. And this is what he says about his own study at the time. This encounter with personalism, he talks about he was encountering the philosophical movement in Europe of the early 20th century called personalism, a, a, a movement that influenced Karawatiya, by the way. This encounter with personalism was for me a spiritual experience that left an essential mark, especially since I spontaneously associated such personalism with the thought of St. Augustine who in his confessions had struck me with the power of all his human passion and death. By contrast, I had difficulties in penetrating the thoughts of Thomas Aquinas, whose crystal clear logic seemed to me to be too closed in on itself, too impersonal and ready-made. This may have also been something to do with the fact that Arnold Wilsman, the philosopher who taught us Thomas, presented us with a rigid neo-scholastic Thomism that was simply too far afield from my own questions. So why did he turn to Augustine? 
It wasn't like you'll read in the press because Augustine is pessimistic and hates oh. sex and, you know, he was rejecting everything modern. He turns to Augustine because he sees in Augustine an expression of the personalism that he's trying to communicate the gospel. What kind of, what does he mean? He specifically says the confessions. The psychological depth and wisdom that you see in Augustine's confessions, like the passage that I've exerted as quotation number six. Late have I loved thee, O beauty ever ancient, ever true, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me. But I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, you would not, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me. And I burned for your peace. Passages like this spoke to the young Father Ratzinger because they spoke to the condition that he had experienced himself in his hunger and thirst for God. But also it spoke to the condition of the hunger and thirst, the spiritual hunger and thirst, that he saw in the young people he was ministering to as a young priest in post-war Germany. And in my experience, quite frankly, it is the kind of thing that speaks to the younger generation today, who are hungering and thirsting for spiritual truth. We all know the truth. We all know this. Deep down inside each one of us, every muscle, every nerve, every sinew, longs, yearns, desires union with infinite love. No finite love will satisfy us. The most passionate friendship, the most intimate marital relations will not satisfy us. We always want more. People who work for me know this slogan a lot because I use it all the time as a boss. I don't want much, I just want more. <laughs> we humans always want more. There's a dimensionism in us. We desire more because we were made, if you will, with a God-sized hole in us that only God can fill. We were made for union with infinite love. And no finite love will satisfy the restless heart. And that's why Augustine says, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. He, of course, quoting the Psalms. But that experience of restlessness, of hunger, of thirsting for infinite love is the experience of the current generation, Generation Y, the millennials, at college campuses today. That's what they're looking for. Now, many of them did what I did as a young person. They looked for love in all the wrong places, to quote a great theological country western song. But if we can show them that what they're looking for is that personal encounter with the Lord who is, and through that personal encounter, the communion they're looking for is with God and through God with all others in God. If we can show them that in an effective way, our apologetical activity has made a huge leap forward because they are panting, longing for authentic relationship, real love, and true communion. They were in mid-20th mid mid century Germany. They are in early 21st century America. And I would say all humans in all places at all times do, uh, are doing this. And that's why to this young theologian, Joseph Ratzinger, Augustine spoke more eloquently 
than Thomas did, or at least the Thomism as it was presented to him. Now, it also coincided with the fact that he lived in a country divided between Protestants and Catholics. And one of the great things about Augustine is Lutherans and Catholics agree that Augustine is worth paying attention to. Uh. And so it took him be, be back into the church's history before there were the divisions that so plague the church today. Before the great Protestant revolt and before the schism between East and West. And in this, of course, he was immersing himself in something that was going on in France in particular, but also coming into Germany and being discovered in the Benedictine monasteries of Germany was the beginning of resource bond. Going back to the original sources. Trying to get over some of the divisions and problems that had beset the church in the second half of millennium by going back to the earliest church fathers, even behind that to the sources of scripture themselves. And his theological approach is to do a Jordamental updating by going back and seeing how it was at the beginning. And so when he comes to the council, as many of the great theologians who gave us the council, there's this one-two step going on. And it speaks to the kind of way that I believe Catholic theology should be done. This is why in B under 4, I say he's a man of the council. Of course, he upright the council. He did uh, a major uh, commentary on the council after the council. And he criticizes some things about the council. He says, for example, in his commentary on God and his that it's entirely too optimistic about the human person. Uh, he believes that, um, he, he jokes, you know, that it's called the God and his the, the, uh, the, the hope and the joy, right? The joy and the hope, right? Gaudium, joy, and spes, hope, the joy and the hope. And then the next line, and the fear and the anguish. He wished it had been titled the fear and the anguish, right? Because why? His experience was of that anguish that made people long for God. And by starting with joy and hope, he thought it was entirely too optimistic, right? But uh, he's a man of the council, but he's a man of what I call the Catholic and, A-N-D. As a young boy growing up a Lutheran, when I was taught catechism in, at 14 to be confirmed in the Lutheran church, I uh, was told to memorize the catechetical, uh, the three most important catechetical statements of Lutheranism, sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. Why did they have it to me in Latin? I have no idea. <laughs> but they did. Right? And these were the three important truths that Luther had stood for, here I stand, firmly against the errors of Romanism. Notice that term, alone, alone, alone. Let's take the middle one first, grace alone. For Lutheran theology, at least the Lutheran theology I grew up with in the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church, Luther's theology as interpreted by that particular Senate believed that the human person was corrupt beyond repair was a mass of corruption. Matter of fact, the image used in Luther's writing was that the person in grace is like a dung heap covered in snow. The grace comes in and covers the, you know, covers the dung heap, but deep down, you're still a dung heap, right? Now, that's grace alone, because our nature is so corrupted that it's unsalvageable. The Catholic approach to this problem is... Grace and nature. Grace 
perfects nature. It builds upon nature. It elevates nature. It heals nature. Yes, our nature is damaged. Yes, sin has affected us to the core. But grace penetrates and possesses and transforms and elevates. So it's grace and nature. Same thing with Scripture. It's not Scripture alone. Heck, how can we have Scripture alone? Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us what books make up the book. How do we know what books make up the book unless we have some tradition that tells us these books are in the book? You know, there's a huge debate in the early church if Clement's letters, which are wonderful, should go in the book or not. They decided no because Clement was the third pope and not apostolic. It ought not to go into Scripture. But who decided that? Tradition did. We have to have at least enough tradition to tell us what books make up the book. So for Catholics, it's not scripture alone, it's scripture and tradition. And of course, the same thing with faith. It's not faith alone. It's faith and works, because what faith is, is a lived relationship with the God who is. And a real relationship must be lived out. This is what James, in the letter of James, is getting to. What Luther called an epistle of straw, when it says, You show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith that works. We have a faith that works. Now, all this being said, there is certain priority to part of the equation. Right? I believe there's nothing revealed in tradition that isn't at least implicit in Scripture, personal theological opinion. And so there is, a, if you will, a pride of place to Scripture, which is a codified version of tradition in that privileged time when the apostles were given witness as the official witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his teaching. It's faith and works. Now, faith is essential. Without him, we can do nothing. There's a certain priority to faith. But it's not in a vacuum, and it's not alone. Same thing with grace. Okay? All is grace, St. Therese said. And there's a sense that that is, of course, very true. So he is a man of that Catholic and. So yes, resource mont, going back to the sources, and a juramento. But for him, the emphasis is always being rooted in the sources. You can't effectively update unless you are grounded in the tradition, the traditio, the tradition. He is radically opposed to those who try to make a... Uh, um, a uh, discontinuity with the council, who interpreted the council as a time when everything was radically broken and everything before it was like an Italian race car driver. You know, the first thing an Italian race car driver does, breaks off the rearview mirror, because what's behind him doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Only what's in front. And many theologians acted that way as if everything before the council somehow was wrong. You can't have authentic revelation and, and, and authentic Catholic theology that has this discontinuity in it. So he's against Juramento alone, but he's also against Ressourcement alone. Because as he says, we've got to find new forms, new ways of expressing the ancient truths. And so he's constantly doing this, but obviously there's a certain priority to the tradition, the tradition. This is why in 1972, as the biography points out, he breaks away as a theologian from the concilium group the, 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 there was a magazine after the council called Concilium, or Concilium, depending on how you pronounce your Latin, um, that uh, was the journal of theological debate after the council. It was uh, well, the very first issue. had an article by Joseph Ratzinger in it. He was an active participant in Concilium. But as time went through, by 1972, he realized that the editors and writers who were contributing to Concilium, their view of the council was not authentically the council. Uh, Skill of Edge, Ronner, 
um, some of the liberation theologians in their beginning were beginning to say things that this were not authentically what the council was about. So he and a group of like-minded theologians who had been theologians of the council broke off and formed their own journal. And he was one of the founding editors, founding fathers of this journal called Communium. Henri de Lubon. Hans Robert Balbasar. Joseph Ratzinger. Carol Wattia. These are all some of the people who joined the communal movement as a more authentic way of interpreting the Second Vatican Council. And if you want a quotation on that, it's quotation number 10 from the American editor of Communio, David Schindler, who's one of my old teachers. When asked about Communio, Schindler says, the term Communio, in its fundamental meaning, seeks to recover the nature of the church as a communion of persons. This loving communion includes the hierarchical Petrine structure that guarantees the objectivity of love. There was much discussion following the Second Vatican Council of the notion of the people of God as the dominant understanding of the church. It's actually chapter 2 of Lumen Gentium, not chapter 1. Communio does not so much contradict this notion as transform it, emphasizing the initiative of God who establishes and maintains the unity of the church through Jesus Christ with the cooperation of his mother Mary, whose fiat made her person the first home of God on earth, hence the basic figure of the church. The notion of the church as communio thus contrasts with the notion of the church as congregation, uh, congregatio. Well, I'm going to say congregation because I'm a new speaker. While communio emphasizes the nature of the church as gift from above, from God, established from above, congregatio indicates a community that comes to us from below by virtue of the decision of the individual wills of the community in the matter of a democratic body. He goes on with that quotation. You can read the rest. The key here is not that Ratzinger is against theology from below, but theology from below, again, the Catholic hand, can only truly be understood with theology from above. What does that mean? God reveals. He gives us Jesus Christ. It's God's initiative. And nothing in our minds or our preparation could have imagined the reality, the utter gratuity of the word made flesh. There are theologians out there who want to emphasize that man, because we're creating the image and likeness of God, we can work up towards God. We can start with human experience and work beyond that. We can start with creation and start to learn something about God. You can learn a great deal about the artist from his art. And they're not wrong to do so. Wisdom 13, Romans 1 says that. But we get very, very little progress going on our own efforts from above. It's like the Tower of Babel. We don't get very far. We need the utter gratuity of God speaking to us, his word, and that has to be the priority. Now, do we see any evidence that Ratzinger does theology from, the below? from below? Sure. Look at what he's been saying about the ecological movement and environmentalism. This is theology from below stuff. He has made his Vatican, his state, which he is the head of state, the first country in the world that's carbon neutral. Yeah, this is a big thing with him. He's going to speak about it when he's here. He's going to speak about it when he's at the UN. He's convinced that we're not taking care of the environment, that we're not respecting God's creation, that we're not being good stewards. And he has bought carbon offsets in Hungary that planted a bunch of trees to offset the entire carbon footprint of the Vatican City State, you know, including his Pope-mobile and his plane and Shepherd One and all that stuff. Right? So he takes this stuff seriously. So he does do some theology from above, but below. But the vast majority of his emphasis is in the words spoken by, by God in the person of Jesus, 
reveals to us ourselves, reveals to us how to live and how to love. Okay? Catholic hymn. Last but not least, in thinking about his theology, you cannot speak of his theological endeavors without speaking about the liturgy. He is not a liturgist, which I take to be good. I consider liturgists like poltergeists. You know the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. We can negotiate with a terrorist. He is not a liturgist. He is a, his theology, he's a systematician. His, his systematic theology is a specialist. But he does believe the liturgy plays an extraordinary role, not only in the life of the church and in the life of the individual believer, but in the theological endeavor. We believe as we pray, and we pray as we believe. The law of belief and the law of prayer, for him, lex grande, lex grande, lex grande, lex grande, the way we pray, the law of prayer is the law of belief. That is um, a, a fundamental belief of Benedict. My own experience of him explaining this is in reference to the catechism. When he was talking about the catechism, he had a wonderful way of explaining why we were going to keep the structure of the catechism in its four parts that we currently have. You know, that's Luther's way of doing catechism. Luther was the first person to put the catechism out with a part in the creed, a part on the sacraments, a part, even though we only have two, uh, a part on the uh, moral life and a section on prayer. That was the Lutheran catechism that the, tri the Trent catechism was in reaction to. And many, many commentators said to then Cardinal Ratzinger, let's get away from this structure. It's not our structure. And he said, no, we're keeping this structure. And he ex what, the reason he said we're keeping this structure is this. He said, with this structure, we answer the questions of faith, hope, and love. Because the first part, the part on the, on the, of the, of the, on the creed, answers the questions of faith, how we ought to believe. The last section on prayer answers the questions of hope. Who are we to hope in? What are we to hope for? Prayer answers that. And the third section on morals answers the question, how are we to love? So the answers of faith, hope, and love are given to us in this structure. But there's four parts. That leads to sacraments, the liturgy. And then he said a very profound thing in my opinion. He says, and the liturgy is the living space where we get to live out faith, hope, and love. Now that's interesting because that term living space in German was a term that was used both negatively and positively. Okay? Part, partly it was used in a positive way to speak of their love for their land. It was used by the Nazis, of course, as an excuse for why they had to expand and take more living space. So for him to use that term that the liturgy provides us that living space, the place we can live out faith, hope, and love, he knows what I think he's doing, expressing the importance of the idea that we must live it out. Because for him, the liturgy is the place where heaven and earth come together. You may, I, I actually gave you a long quotation on that. Uh, it's quotation number 13 from his book, his long interview, <coughs> God in the World. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but he says, 
Um, this is true greatness, that heaven is torn open here. He's talking about the liturgy. And we are incorporated into the great chorus of praise. And that is why the preface ends with these words. With all the choirs of angels of heaven, we join in singing. And we know that we are not alone, that we are joining in. That the barrier between earth and heaven has been truly torn open. You know, for him, the liturgy is the place where we encounter heaven, where we begin to live heaven as a foretaste. And so it's important. And that's why he talks about those great moments in the cathedral as a seminarian. And why he thinks it's very important that our liturgies express that vertical dimension. Right? I'll take questions about that later. Okay? Alright. So here's this man who's a theologian. A theologian at the council. He goes back to Germany. Starts to write commentaries on the council. Starts to uh, uh, provide um, uh, scholarly journals, uh, articles to scholarly journals, begins to write books, gets promoted to full professor, and 1968 happens. And 68 in Germany was like 68 in America. Now you, most of you are too young to remember 68. I happen to be old enough to remember it. Uh, 1968 was a revolutionary year. When I drove with my parents on vacation from Pennsylvania to Florida in 1968, every major city was on fire as we went by. Martin Luther King. Yeah, Martin Luther King was killed. Bobby Kennedy was killed. Uh, uh, the race riots, the student revolts. Uh, and all of it was, uh, it was all against authority, against the man. Well, what happened in America happened in Germany. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't let professors speak. They would, they would shout them out. They took over uh, buildings. They had sit-ins. They demanded all... Same kind of thing happened in Germany, happened in Paris, happened a lot of places. And to Ratzinger, he saw this. This is Nazism. It wasn't the ideology of Nazism. It was left-wing fascism, but it was fascism. And he reacted the same way as he had to Nazism. He says, this is power trying to drown out truth. Especially when they were dry, trying to drown out university lectures where they were, you were pursuing truth. Right? And for him, it was, uh, it was a very rude awakening to the fact that some of the discussion of freedom that had been uh, so optimistically put forward in the council and other places wasn't grounded in a reality that people can misuse their freedom in a very, very pernicious way. And so uh, it, he begins to see that freedom always has to be, it's not an end in itself, that it's a means to a, to a greater end. And he, he begins to write and think that way. Now he would have gone on very happily being a professor, but Paul VI did a very, very wicked thing to him. <laughs> Made him a bishop. A very bad thing to do to a priest. Uh, a wicked thing that uh, they should stop doing to priests. No, you gotta have that. But woe to that man by whom this favor comes. Um, he was made uh, Archbishop. He went right to Archbishop of Munich. The first diocesan priest to be named to that position in 80 years. He, he's one of two cardinals that went into the papacy, a papal election that elected him, that was appointed not by Carol Wittia, who still, was still voting. The other was uh, Cardinal Baum of uh, Washington. Uh, but uh, he was in 1977 appointed, was soon made cardinal, and then Paul VI dies, he goes to the conclave, he, he's involved in helping get Karawatiya. Well, first John Paul I elected, then John Paul II, and uh, then John Paul II asks him to come to work in the Curia. He, he says no at first, but eventually the Pope insists, and so he comes to work and for 25 years works at the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. 
where he had to serve as part of the Curia, which he did admirably, is where I got to meet him, where um, he would have happily retired from there. He actually, he asked to retire from there. And John Paul II, who loved him very much, loved him enough to say no, and didn't let him retire. And so uh, when John Paul II dies, he's around to give the homilies and the speeches that convinced everybody. Cardinal George has told me this himself. There was no doubt when we went in the conclave about his vote. We all knew it. It was clear in the first few votes. And it was just a matter of how quickly we were going to get around to confirming it. They did it, what, four votes? You know, it was, it was very clear who was going to be Pope. And he comes out as Pope. So let's talk about his papacy. First, he chooses Benedict. He chooses Benedict with two Benedicts in mind. Benedict XV, trying to keep the world at peace during World War I. And he sees himself very much linked to Benedict XV, a man who tried to keep the world at peace. And so when he comes here, he's going to talk about the world needing to be more peaceful and what we're going to need to do to make the world a more peaceful place. The second link, of course, is to Benedict who founded the Benedictine movement, the father of Western monasticism, the man who saved civilization by bringing Roman culture and learning and the wisdom of the church and the fathers and the books into the Benedictine monasteries when all of Rome was collapsing around us. I wonder how much Ratzinger sees himself as someone who is helping to save civilization and all that collapses around um, through his efforts as a, as a bishop and now as pope. But uh, he chose Benedict, Benedict, who was, of course, the, such a, a founder of Europe in many ways, one of the patroness, patrons of Europe, uh, as the name. Uh, I think he does this, uh, he says himself, he does it with both in mind. And how is he going to li live his papacy? Well, look at some of these quotations. I gave you uh, seven and eight, for example. Quotations seven and eight. These are things he said about his own, too. Okay? These are his first words on the balcony at St. Peter's. Dear brothers and sisters, after the great Pope John Paul II, the cardinals have elected me, a simple and humble laborer in the vineyard of the Lord. The fact that the Lord knows how to work and to act, even with inadequate instruments, comforts me. And above all, I entrust myself to your prayers. Let us move forward in the joy of the risen Lord, confident of his unfailing help. The Lord will help us, and Mary, his most holy mother, will be on our side. Will be, be on our side. Thank you. That's all I said. I remember I was sitting there waiting to hear what his name was going to be, because I had a mass waiting upstairs. It was the noon mass, Midwest time, at University of Illinois. And I wanted to say mass for him, but I want to use his name in the canon. But, he, you know, I was waiting to get around to the name, and they got around to it, but then I stayed, straight, I stayed and listened to this little thing, and then went up and said mass. You're late. Yeah. Uh, at the installation mass, this is what he said. My real program of governance, the Pope said, is not to do my own will, not to pursue my own ideas, but to listen together with the whole church to the word and the will of the Lord, to be guided by him so that he himself will lead the church at this hour of our history. And then quotation number 11. This is on to uh, Polish radio. Not long after he was elected, um, that April he was elected. In October of that year, on the anniversary of John Paul II's death, he's interviewed by uh, Polish radio. Here's a translation of part of that interview. My personal mission is not to issue many new documents, 
but to ensure that his, John Paul II documents, are assimilated because they are a rich treasure. They are the authentic interpretation of Vatican II. Okay, again, those who want to say that John Paul II is trying to go back and turn the council around. From Ratzinger's, uh, Benedict's uh, mind, and from personal theological opinion myself, John Paul II and Benedict are giving us the authentic interpretation of the council. So he sees himself as a teacher, continuing in the mode of his predecessor. He's not going to add a whole lot new. He's going to make sure that what has been done is better known and better understood. And so you see this. What does he do with this Wednesday catechesis? He continues to teach on the Psalms. That's what John Paul II was doing. He, he ends the Psalms. And as soon as he does with the Psalms, he begins teaching on the saints. These wonderful, wonderful reflections on the, on the apostles, on the saints. on Augustine now. What's going on on Augustine, as you can imagine. But they've already come out now, starting to come out as books. This is this, the one of the apostles he's did. It's an incredibly rich teaching source. You know, he's, he's drawing huge crowds. And so he's giving them good catechesis on the simplest of Christian truths. He's using the saints to teach. So, uh, for example, his catechesis on Matthew. He talks about Matthew, the tax collector. He talks about the Caravaggio painting of the call of Matthew. He talks about how lots of people criticize the money changers not seeing Jesus in the painting. And he says, but they got to see Jesus. Because Matthew that night threw a party. And he invited all his friends, and they got to be with Jesus. And he taught, therefore, he's pointing to the importance of the apostolate of like to like. Right? How do people hear about the gospel? How do tax collectors hear about the gospel? Well, one tax collector gets converted, and then he goes and tells his friends. How do we do apostolate? We do apostolate of like to like. Students convert students. Factory workers convert factory workers. Hairdressers convert hairdressers. Congressmen convert congressmen. You know, this is how apostolate happens. He uses Matthew as an example of that. You think about it, that night. Plus, I like it because, you know, we Catholics are a party people and it shows, you know, that we throw parties. <laughs> Thomas. His, re his reflection on Thomas the Apostle. Everyone knows him as Doubting Thomas. But when, when Ratzinger reflects, when Benedict reflects on Thomas, he says, in his catechesis on Thomas, he says, you know, isn't it odd that Thomas said, unless I put my hands into the side and touch the nail prints, I will not believe. What well, human talks that way? When we talk about recognizing someone, don't we say, unless I look into their eyes, unless I touch their face, I won't? But he doesn't say that. Why is that? We recognize people through our faces, but not the risen Lord. Matter of fact, the risen Lord in facial appearance could fool people. But the one thing that is authentic in the risen Lord, the way we recognize the reality of the risen Lord, is the wounds. That's what makes him un, um, uh, um, That's what makes him recognizable. You can't make a mistake and recognize it. As a matter of fact, remember the story of Ignatius of Loyola? Ignatius of Loyola is being, is being fooled by Satan. Satan appears to him as Christ, and for a while he's following what he tells him. But then he realizes that the Christ who's appearing to him doesn't have any wounds. Oh. And he realizes it's not the authentic Christ. So he does a little catechism saying, the way we know more than anything else, the power of the resurrected Lord, what's most visible in him, what's most unrepeatable, that's the word I was looking for before, most unrepeatable in him is the wounds. And that's how we recognize the Lord. He does this all kind of catechesis like this. Great stuff. 
Right? Very accessible. The crowds get to hear it. He does it in Italian and he does summaries of it in different languages. Everybody gets their trinkets blessed and everybody goes home really wow. This is great stuff. He's a teacher and he continues to teach. He does, um, he calls the women of the gospel. Uh, he uses a Pauline term, sum ergus, uh, which is directly translated as collaborators of the gospel. Now he chose as his, his uh, co-workers or collaborators in the gospel, he chose that as his physical model, so he sees the women of the gospel. He calls Mary Magdalene by that ancient title, the apostle to the apostles, because she was the first to take the good news to the apostles. So she was the evangelist of the evangelist, the apostles to the apostle, the apostle to the apostles. Uh, great stuff. Right? And he begins doing much less encyclicals, fewer encyclicals. He only had two out, so in, in you know, many years now, only two. One on hope, one on love. See a kind of basic pattern here. All right, but we're going to get one on social justice in years out. Right? And of course, in the area of liturgy, which is such a passion for him, he begins to reform the reform. And what he mean, what I mean by that, is not that he's going to try to change. The fact that we have updated the liturgy, but he's going to put, try to put an end to the abuses that have so marred the beauty and the grandeur and the wonder of the liturgy. And he's going to permit those more ancient forms, what he calls the extraordinary, to continue to be celebrated as it was this evening. Because it allows people to experience that renting of heaven and that connection between heaven and earth that he believes the liturgy is. So we see that the new germ tightens up this stuff. Now it was being done at the end of, of JP2, and of course he worked on this as he but he's seeing that in force. And it's nice. I'm seeing less and less liturgical abuses out there. The young guys in the seminary have no time for liturgical abuses. They all want to do mass the way the church intended it. Even architects are catching on. This, but in Maryland, when John Dubois, who founded Mount St. Mary's University, where I teach 200 years old this year, when he founded the church in Frederick, uh, Maryland, when he was pastor of it, his parish boundaries included all of Western Maryland, all of, of the area around Emmitsburg and Frederick now, and the entire state of West Virginia. Um, so he's on his horse a lot. But when John Dubois uh, built the church that is St. John's, um, and of course it's a new building from the 1850s that's there now, but when he built the first one in the 1920s, the law in Maryland was a Catholic church was allowed, but it couldn't look like a church. Oh. <laughs> now I think many modern architects think that law is still in existence. <laughs> to God, our architects have caught on and we're starting even to see architecture again that celebrates the fact that the church and the liturgical space is a place where heaven encounters earth and earth encounters heaven. And boy, do young people want that. The young people I serve and have the opportunity to minister to, they're looking for the really real when they worship. They want bells and smells. They want tangible signs, icons, statues, rosary beads, things they can taste, touch, smell, sense, because they've spent so much of their life in virtual reality that when they come to pray, they want the really real. The more real it is, the more it is, the easier it is for them to enter into the mystery. And so, if nothing else, Holy Spirit votes with uh, his feet, and the feet are moving in that direction. All right. Preview of his visit to America. Hmm. I'm guessing here, and I mean, I don't have tea leaves, so I'm doing it just on, on sort of my knowledge of what I think. Three things I think we should look for, or expect, I should say. One is he will we'll focus on the gospel. It will be Christocentric. 
He's going to lay. He's not going to miss an opportunity to lay out the basic Christian message wherever he goes. So expect to hear the basic Christian message focused on the Gospels for Easter for the days that he is here. You'll see that. I think because he is going to the United Nations and because he that's the reason for the visit, that you'll hear a lot about moral truth. And that moral truth is the only place you can authentically ground human rights. And that you need that if you're going to have justice and you need that if you're going to have peace. Right? Without the, uh, it's going to be based on the dignity of the human person. Without respect for the dignity of the human person, you can have justice. Without justice, you can have peace. And so that's going to be a, a recurring theme. And then the only place that you can defend human rights against the onslaught of the dictatorship of relativism is with the moral truth which has been given to us in the person of Jesus. We're going to hear that kind of theme again and again and again from Benedict. And it's good that we hear that. We in America need to hear that. I hope that some people in the Supreme Court are listening. <laughs> um, I won't mention names like Kennedy or anything like that, but I, I hope that you would listen. Um, the, uh, yeah, well, some people I don't hold hope out for. Kennedy is supposed to be a Catholic, so I'm hoping he's listening. Um, and last but not least, he'll speak about the vocation of being an educator and the vocation of being a bishop, because he's going to meet with the bishops, and he's going to meet with presidents of Catholic universities, and he's going to talk about the awesome responsibility that, that is theirs as educators and bishops. All bishops are educators, not all educators are bishops, but he's going to speak of those awesome vocations and call them to imitate Christ in serving those that they are entrusted to their care. So I think that's what we're going to hear from him as he comes. In all of this, we can't forget that this man, first and foremost, sees himself as a man baptized with the new waters of Easter, and that that is the most privileged moment of his life, when he was made a Christian, not by anything he did, but by the saving, unmerited grace of Christ, won for us through Christ's uh, passion, death, and resurrection, and shared with all of us in the saving waters of baptism. Glory be to the Father, Son, Our Lady, seat of wisdom. Who has the first question for Monsignor Swetler? Go ahead. Monsignor, can you speak more on um, what Benedict's form of the reform? Mm -hmm. His uh, initiative with the liturgy? Yeah. Well, the, I think the most important thing, and again, it's the, the end of Karawatiya, John Paul II's pontificate, of course, he's at CDF at the time, into, we see things happening like joint documents from multiple dicasteries. We see the germ, the general instruction of the Roman Missal being tightened so that some things that were quite vague, I, I, I think I was doing things the way the church intended them to be done, but I was, and sometimes I must admit, I was guessing. Now the new germ makes it very explicit, uh, and I'm glad to see that. It makes it easier. So it's a structure. And so uh, we see a tightening uh, and a, a, a real effort to eliminate some of the abuses that happen. Uh, we also see an emphasis, again, on understanding that there's a complementary role between the priesthood of all believers and the ordained priesthood, but that complementary role doesn't mean same, that there's different but complementary. Just like in, in, in sexual ethics, we're seeing an emphasis on the different but complementary role of male and female, so they're re-emphasizing re the roles, the appropriate roles, so that both 
can pray better, and it's more clear what's going on in the Holy Sacrifice and the Mass. In addition to that, of course, is the emphasis, again, on the extraordinary form and the possibility of that being celebrated where pastorally appropriate by those who could celebrate it and celebrate it with dignity and, and uh, solemnity. And we're seeing that, of course, is very popular in many, many places where it's uh, being celebrated. So all of that, and I could go on and on more, but what we're seeing, and we're also seeing, uh, it's not only what he does in his teaching, which is very important, but what's being supported and emphasized. So you see, for example, um, priests like Father Samuel Weber at Wake Forest University. He's the Catholic scholar on that campus. But he's there, he's, ex he's an expert in Gregorian chant. And he is taking the English translations of the Psalmster, he's taking all of the, and he's putting them in the plain chant, and they're quite good. And they're quite, you know, it's beautiful, I, we've had a chance to, to, to use some of them in seminary. And now all that work's being done and being supported uh, by, um, uh, by the highest level of the church. So we're seeing some of the things that really should have been done 40 years ago, but it, after every council, it takes a while to figure out what the council was about. You know, after some councils, there were wars about it. So at least we haven't gone to, to bloodshed. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we're getting there. Close. Some of us have wanted that. So, uh, so I mean, that's that's the kind of thing. Ken, Ken you probably could add a couple more things. No, you're, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, sir. Monsignor, um, can you uh, help us understand his thinking in appointing his successor in the CDF? It was kind of a surprise. Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was uh, not privy to that. He didn't consult me at all, so it was a surprise. It was not a surprise he appointed an American. Really? Not at all. But we needed an American in the, in the Curia. We did, at that stage, there was not going to be any American in the, any of the top jobs, which would have been very odd. Uh, so it was natural that it would have gotten to an American and given that. Uh, of course, it's the highest ranking uh, American ch uh, churchman ever. Um, I believe that, um, I, I think this is accurate, that he, he probably offered it to Cardinal George first. Yeah. Uh, Cardinal George uh, had been offered a curio position a couple of times. I was his theological advisor for the Illinois Catholic Conference. Oh. Uh, and so I, I pretty much am sure, you know, I've never had, he would never say it, and, but I'm pretty sure he was offered a couple of times jobs with John Paul II. I think probably was asked. He believes that he needed to stay put in Chicago to deal with that, the second largest church in America. Uh, local church next to Los Angeles. Tell him to deal with Father Flager. <laughs> well, he has a lot of problems, but Father Flager is among, among, among actually his lower ranking problems. So um, he uh, I, and I. So I think that given that it was going to an American, the only other American churchman who was an archbishop of the time or a bishop of the time who had worked at the CDF was uh, Laveda. And so it's this. And the Cardinal Ratzinger knew him. He worked on the Catechism Project too. He was there when I was as bishop of. Uh, Archbishop of Portland at the time. And he's essentially so. still the head of CDF. Yeah, and he, yeah, and to some extent, you know, that's the thing, having been in the military, you never wanted your captain to have the same job that you used to have because you don't really run things. Uh, I had a, I, when I was first lieutenant on the USS Kid, my skipper had been first lieutenant, so he really was first lieutenant, and I did what he told me to do, and that was about it. And I think to some extent that's what's going on. Uh, we have some other Americans in the congregation. Gus Denoya, yeah. the wonderful Dominican priest. Uh, who's number three at CDF? Secretary. And, and Charlie Brown, Father Charlie Brown from New York, a protege of Monsignor Smith, a wonderful man. We were at Oxford together. He's just a, a first-rate uh, mind, and, and so there, there's a, a lot of American influence in the CDF. Now, one thing I didn't mention, and it's a quotation that I gave you, 
this is a shameless because Jerry brought this up, I can use it. Uh, on the back page, the 14th quotation is what, John, what then Cardinal Ratzinger said about the Church of America, about his opinion of the Church of America. It's very complicated. That he said in this long interview that he did, this book right interview that he did, this is about how when it comes to what's going on in the church in the world, America's often way ahead of everybody else, and the CDF looks to America to help them out because we're doing things in medical ethics and things like that that nobody else is doing. We're way ahead of everybody because we have such a great hospital system, such a great um, uh, minds working in medical ethics that we're way ahead of everybody else in the world. And so they look to us and that we in many ways are setting the tone in many fields for the rest of the church, the church and the rest of the world. Um, so that's what that quotation says. Okay, there was a hand. Yes, ma'am. Oh, this is just a simple one that I maybe forgot. You yeah. talked about those three Luther and the faith, yeah. grace, and the good What yeah. was the additional one for the grace? Uh, grace and nature. Thank grace you. builds and perfects. Builds on nature and perfects. <coughs> elevates, heals. So, great. Yes, sir. This is a huge question. Probably books could be written on it, but. <coughs> Um, personally, I think Pope John Paul II, mystic, holy man, destined for that for our time, and, and uh, but some people see that there say that there were some defects in his papacy mm -hmm. that uh, and could you maybe mention a little bit about that and maybe how Pope Benedict the Sixteenth is maybe moving into those areas or whatever. Well, I, I was taught never speak poorly of the dead, but yeah. um, but that you know uh, being, that being dead, that being that being said, excuse me. Um, uh, the um, uh, if anybody the, the criticisms that I've seen, you know, they, though of course the Richard McBrines of the world criticize him, but that you know you take that for what it's worth, which is nothing. Um, the, uh, the the criticisms that I, I think have any weight to them would have been mainly on uh, how he ran the bureaucracy of the church and how he shepherded the church in Rome when it came to his own theological institutes in Rome that teach. And you could criticize that he allowed people to continue to teach that were teaching not just a little bit different than he was preaching and teaching, but 180 out. And then he left people in place that and, and it didn't say you know didn't have his his bureaucracy deal with dissenters in the Roman universities themselves, and there is something to be said that that was true. I think John Paul was so generous, like for example uh, Bernard Bernard Herring, who did a, a great deal of good work in his early life, but then went became a dissenter on sexual ethics after the council. Herring was going to be censored; it was all done, but then he got sick. And John Paul II, hey, sick, and we're not going to do this. Well, he ended up living for 20 more years, you know. And you know that was just the kind of man he was. He wasn't going to see, and he felt the strength of his personality and his teaching would just eclipse all that. And to a large extent, he's right. I mean, the dissenters in America—they're still around, but they have no real institutional oomph when it comes to the academy anymore. I mean, whole colleges have given over to them, but of course nobody's going there. You know, I get no seminarians from those colleges and universities. They're not reproducing themselves physically or spiritually, so they're dying of dust, their history. Um, so there is something to be said for that, but I must admit, I would have liked a little bit more cleaning house. Uh, some criticized his, the, the fact that he was hands-off on the choosing of bishops, and that he Lord, Lord let that be done by the you know, by the diplomatic corps and by the staff. 
I don't know I wasn't there. I was out of town when it all happened. I don't know how I chose bishops and how I didn't. Um, I'm not going to be you know, bishop bashing. I don't want the job, and I don't think and anybody who does want the job is crazy. So um, you know, that's something that some people might point to, but you know, how can fix it? I don't know. You know? I, so, so yeah, I mean, that's those would be those, mainly how he ran the church. He was busy being an evangelist, not necessarily. And I think Benedict will, if he lives long enough, reform the curia in a big way. We'll see a big restructuring of the curia. Uh, I expect that at some stage. And he's already significantly changed the curia. Thank you. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Do you have you heard or do you think that he will uh, sometime in the near future? Um, come down hard on our Catholic universities in our country. Well, you know, that's how the Post spun it, which, um, you know, I don't think Benedict, that's his style. You know, the, you know, the Panzer Pope and all that, he's never been that. I mean, even at CDF, he did everything with, you know, he was more fair than fair, perhaps sometimes too fair, you know, and uh, he, he will criticize, but he's not going to crack down. And anyhow, he doesn't think it's his job to crack down. It's the local bishop's job to crack down. And one of the things he's doing is he's not traveling as much. And he's not teaching as much because one of the things he believes, I believe, and you see it hinted at it in the quotations I served here, is that one thing that JP2 did, uh, JP2 did was take all the air out of the room. I mean, he was such a big figure that everybody else became second fiddle, including the local bishop in his local church. And he's staying and letting the local bishop again assert themselves as the leader of the local church. And we have to remember, that's our theology. The leader of the local church is not the pope. It's the bishop. When I was working as secretary for John Myers, two of our men were going to be ordained in Rome by John Paul II. One day I'm working at my desk and I get a letter from John Paul II. You notice these letters. You take take note. It was a letter from John Paul II to my bishop requesting permission to ordain two priests. Because the Bishop of Rome cannot ordain men from Peoria without the Bishop of Peoria's permission. Because he's just a bishop. He's the Bishop of Rome. He's not the Bishop of Peoria. And so it's an, it was an interesting moment in ecclesiology for me because it reminded me that it's first among equals. Well, being the good theologian who is rooted in the fathers, he knows the power of the local ordinary. And he respects the power of the local ordinary. Now, he may tell the bishops, you need to crack down on your, on your colleges. But uh, that's not the Pope's job as much as it is the local bishop's job. Now, one of the problems we have in America is most of our Catholic colleges are run by religious orders. And this is where it gets more complicated, because what's the relationship between the local ordinary and the Jesuits? Or the local ordinary and the Dominicans? Or the local ordinary and, let's say, just that random, the Holy Cross Fathers? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, that question becomes a real, a real, a real dicey thing. Now, that's where Rome will have to get involved. Now, there have been instances in America where a bishop has said, fine, if you're going to act this way, then get out of my diocese. It's tough to move a university. Mm -hmm. right? Now, that's what I call the thermonuclear option. Right? Yeah. And one case I saw where a bishop did that, the superiors in Rome said, we're not losing this university, and put the people under obedience to vote as the bishop wanted them to vote. Uh, I don't expect many bishops to do that, but they could do that. And maybe, uh, let's say, for example, just randomly, the Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend might want to think about doing something. <laughs> yeah, something knows the name of the way. Do you think uh, Pope Benedict XVI will talk about abortion clearly? That's when I took the moral truth in here. I think he's going to always start with the dignity of the human person, and the first crime against humanity he's going to talk about is the direct attack on the unborn. 
Because if we don't get that one right, how can we talk about the dignity of the human person? I mean, this is, you know, I've got a new way of doing this. This is my gig. Some of my students are here. They know they've heard this a lot. But my new way of doing this is that as I look at history now, as I get older, I think of this in historical terms. The history of humanity is that we constantly divide the human race into two groups, humans and non-humans. And we, 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 it's an arbitrary line. The powerful draw the line so they can exploit those who they claim to be non-humans. Whites into blacks, men into women. When Roman law, only Romans were full citizens with full human rights. Throughout human history, that's what we've done. We've taken the species Homo sapiens and divided it into two groups, persons and non-persons, so we can exploit the heck out of the non-person. The Catholic teaching on this is very simple. Every living member of the species Homo sapiens deserves the uh, protection of being a person. Right? Deserves to be treated, the status of being a person. There's no division of the humanity into two groups. What we're doing right now is we're saying the unborn and the elderly, some elderly, now some mentally handicapped, some born alive until, what did Barbara Rocks say, they go home. Um, you know, I don't know if that counts the trip home uh, or whatever it is, um, you, know, uh, you know, are considered non-human. And of course, that's an arbitrary line drawn by the powerful to, uh, against the weak to exploit. So we have to stand up, of course, a very simple teaching we have. All living members of the species Homo sapiens deserve to be treated with the dignity of a human person. Very simple teaching. If that happens to be true, you can see it with your reason alone. And I think he's going to say that kind of stuff a lot. At the UN, in the White House, here in Washington, probably up in New York too. Great. It's getting close to close to, to time, so I'll take a couple more. I can do this all night. Like Nicodemus, I don't mind being all night. <laughs> Jerry, I, yeah. Uh, I'll give you a second. Do you think it was the uh, thinking of uh, Benedict that triggered the Cardinal Rode's opening speech to the Jesuits on their general meeting in January? Oh, no quite, doubt that that was quite clear. clear. That was clear to the highest yeah. level. There's no, I mean, he basically said that. I mean, he didn't have to read the tea leaves. That was basically implied. Um, and, you know, I, I think that everybody recognizes the, the Jesuits have particular problems, and if they're going to exist uh, into the net, into the 100 years from now, if we're going to have Jesuits, they have to get their act together. They're in the process of figuring that out. Right now, we got a Via Media candidate who's a little older as their new general. I think that was to be expected to some extent. It could have been worse, could have been better. Father Pressio was my choice. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, hey, Father Minkowski would have been fine too, you know. Uh, looks like Pedro Arupe number two. Well, time will tell. And I believe the grace of office sometimes too. The Holy Spirit does amazing things with people. Yeah. Um, even so, Jesuits. Even Jesuits, yeah. <laughs> even Jesuits, so, yeah. I, um, uh, I like to, uh, Peter Ryan works with me, yeah. Father Peter Ryan, who would have been a good choice too. Yeah. Um, Father Peter Ryan is a colleague of mine up at Mount St. Mary's, and he's a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, Jesuit father. And lots and lots of uh, the young Jesuits, well, he's not so young anymore, but lots of Jesuits like uh, like Peter. So um, uh, I, it does disturb me when I see things like happen in Spokane, uh, you know, yes, being forced out as president when he's doing a great job. I was an apostolic visitor oh. to the seminary there. Father Spitzer. And, yeah, yeah, forced out. Friend of mine. Yeah, oh. yeah. Oh. And, I, uh, I heard that. And that's very, very sad when you see that because you got something where someone is doing such a great job and it's just obviously political. And oh, yeah. It's, um, and, you know, it's a misuse of power and it's a shame. Who forced him out? Uh, his superior. The provincial. He's a Jesuit. So he's Jesuit. Oh yes. And Gonzaga is a is a is a Jesuit university. Now there's a good example of how the Holy Spirit votes with with uh, his feet. Because when I was absolute visitor out there to the seminary, the seminary is full. This is a place which is under bankruptcy. The, the diocese when I got there. 
the, uh, the, 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 the Jesuits that run the university are of a very much a mixed bag. But some professors who are real deep, profound believers got together with some students who are real deep, profound believers, all the JP2 generation, and they started a JP2 club. Right? It was really hard for the Jesuits not to allow them to start a club. <laughs> and all they did with the club is they did Eucharistic adoration, got together and read the encyclicals of JP2, and prayed together. And all these locations that, that filled up the seminary, every bed in the seminary was filled. They couldn't take anymore. They were bursting at the seams. Right? Came out of this group. Right? Now, it, it was an example of even inside a structure where not everybody in the, in the structure is as faithful as you'd like, the people could operate freely do, and the truth wins out. That's why I'm pretty confident. The truth always wins. And I'm convinced that Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, knows that. And he believes as long as we continue to proclaim the truth whole and entire, at the end of the day, the truth wins. Nazism is gone. The wall is gone. But we got here with a click. Well, <laughs> universities and a few places like that. But you're right, yeah, we do, we do, we, the, the, the battle's over, the victory's won, Christ won, we still have some skirmishes to take care of, right? So, yes? Um, how is the Pope going to deal with the fact that many bishops allow Catholic politicians to vote for choice and... Well, again, yeah, the, the, the Pope is not going to dictate an answer to this. It's just, it, it would just, I just don't think it's going to happen. He might, but I'd be very surprised. Uh, now, he's going to talk to the, the, the bishops as a group, and uh, it's going to be interesting. But I'm not convinced that denying communion to politicians is where we should start in the pro-life movement. I'm just not convinced that it's not going to, I'm saying, as Catholics, we all want it because we think it's a terrible sacrilege and it's, and it's, it's a terrible scandal. But I don't think most of America would understand it. And it would backfire oh, yeah. on us in so many places in so many ways. So prudential judgment may say there's other places to start. Right? And um, you know, I think maybe that's not imprudent for people to do. I like what, of course, he's, he was my old boss. But I like the way John Myers handled the governor of New Jersey. Uh, when he was Catholic, of course, it turns out he also had other problems. <laughs> but he said to him publicly, that look, at, you should not be receiving communion if you continue to support abortion rights. And the Archbishop, the Archbishop said it forcefully and said it repeatedly. And I'll give the governor credit, he has problems, but he was honest enough to say, my Archbishop has said, I should not take communion, I am woman. Oh. And he did not publicly take communion. To me, that's a better solution, where the Archbishop teaches and says, you are not in the state where you should receive communion. Now, I put the ball in the politician's court. If they choose to do so, they have it on their conscience and in their soul. And at the end of the day, the communion line is not the place to decide these things. Right? Now, what can we do with people who continue to do those kind of things? Well, that's another, another. you know, this takes us to a whole another level of how we look at things. So, I'm sorry, I'm just follow, yeah. following on that. And then I'll go back here. And, and yeah. I, just, just in terms of what yeah. St. Paul did First Corinthians, I mean, he related to the people. He said, you must keep yeah. them out. And when right. he repented, you must take them back. Yeah, no, and, and I, like, I agree totally with what Archbishop Burke did in St. Louis with, yeah. the, with the women who claimed ordination and things like that. So there is a room, there is a place for excommunication. The question is, this the place, and are politicians the place to start when we do have things like people running around 
falsely getting ordained and things. Maybe there's other places we need to look first. I, I, it's a tough question. That's why I said four bishops like God, you could do them in yeah. death. You know, yes. No. It should, in that case, maybe should Canon 915 be reworked so well, that I, it's it, not made a mockery of? Well, Canon 915 is very specific. Those who obstinately persist and manifest grave sin shall not be given communion. Right. It's a lot of words there. Obstinately persist and manifest grave sin. Now, it's an interesting wording, uh, because if it had said grave matter, right, it would have been more clear that these people are violating Canon 915, and, or they meet the standard 915 and should be dying communion. But grave sin assumes that we know the state of their soul. And therefore, there's an ambiguity in 915 that leaves room for us to interpret it. And I, and it's t I, t I wrote a, a, a fairly lengthy paper as a seminary on this because it intrigued me. I'm not a canonist. I don't play one on television. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't want to be a canonist. You know, they have to deal with putting us under what God has put together, that kind of stuff. Um, but the. Um, um, uh, that standard talks about manifest grave sin, and therefore then we're judging that we know the conscience. And I know a bishop could honestly say, it's not manifest grave sin, it's manifest grave matter, yeah. but it's not manifest grave sin. Isn't the public act of speaking that way and voting that way? I, I, I agree. You and I are going to interpret it the same way, but I'm saying that's the wiggle, that's the wiggle room in the ambiguity in 915 that causes, causes... Now, when I wrote my paper, what I said is it cannot mean grave sin, it must mean grave matter, because we can never judge the conscience of anybody. Isn't it, yeah. a, isn't it a sin to make those public statements and to not, you know... It's a grave matter. It, it's grave matter. Yeah. But we don't know the state of their soul. Yeah. You know, yeah, there is invincible ignorance, and looking at our politicians, invincible ignorance is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like Father Drine. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there, I mean, there's an example where it talks about slapping all of us Catholics in the face when they need the human rights chair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At, at Georgetown. At Georgetown. Yeah. This is when, and I'll admit we shouldn't do it, but you know, we're the second oldest Catholic university. In, in America, and a lot of times we slip down and say we're the oldest because oldest we don't think Georgetown will ever fight, will ever fight yeah. us on that. No. Because you know, I mean, Georgetown's given up even pretending no. to be that they're the oldest. Yeah, yeah they're the oldest. Yeah. I mean, they don't even try. They don't even. Well, this whole thing with the the, the, the homosexual rights, they mean, they have they just given up even trying to be Catholic, and it's sad, you know. But yeah. so, uh, should I take this as last question? Yeah, I want to say I agree with you to the extent you refer to this uh, politician's business as not being a place to start. But uh, symbolism is very important mm -hmm. in any kind of uh, uh, battle of ideas. Yes, and I think yes, sir. I agree. Such high symbolism yeah. that it is important. Yeah, I, I can tell it's important by the questions that have been raised in this room. No, and, and I, my, my heart and my emotions are totally with you on this. I'm just saying, okay. I understand the bishop's dilemma they're in. And I'm not sure where I would start if I was in their shoes. Thanks be to God, I'm not in their shoes. Um, I do like, like I said, Mr. Burke is pointing to some, saying there are some things that just put you outside of communion in such a way that they are good. For the sake of your soul, I've got to point it out. And he started to use the medicinal approach of excommunication. That may be the way we have to go. Rather than using 915, we may have to use the excommunication um, canons uh, or internet canons, which might be a better way of going where it's formally. And it gives them some rights of, of appeal and rights of, of, uh, 
of uh, law that they wouldn't otherwise have in a 915. Well, on the other hand, that's communication. A lot of them wait a by saying, well, they've automatically done I don't have to do it. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that, that what Archbishop Burke in St. Louis is doing, I think, may be an example of how to do it maybe more formally than using 915 where there can be. 915 is more, uh, is, is not a juridical pastoral judgment, uh, but the formal communication way may be more, a more uh, uh, juridical way of doing it. I don't know. Uh, thanks for God to have that responsibility. Let's <laughs> wait to pray for you. Thank you.